Thank you very much. You know, that is very hard to do. I can barely make one bell ring, let alone make it sound like a song. Thank you. We are in the book of uh, Isaiah this morning, if you'd want to turn there, back to Isaiah 46. In these weeks before Advent, uh, and sort of playing off the election season we're in, we are reviewing some of the principles for which followers of Jesus stand. Uh, these are the boxes, some of the boxes anyway, that we check. Um, and that sometimes put us, we said a couple weeks ago, at odds with our surrounding culture. Uh, we've talked already about the fact that Christ followers are for truth, for the existence of truth. There are some things in this world that are not relative. Uh, the absolute truth and the rightness of some things do not depend on circumstance. Christians affirm that. And our source for that truth, just as it was uh, for the psalmist, we saw that a couple weeks ago, our source for that truth is God's revelation of himself and his laws, which are for us contained in this, his written word. Christ followers are for both the possibility and for the reality of absolute truth. We said that first. Last week, we also said that Christ's followers stand for the possibility and reality of new beginnings. Just as the Apostle Paul described in Romans 6, using the symbol of baptism, we who are in Jesus have died to lives of sin and self-exaltation. And we are now living new lives, exalting Christ. This is why the claim of the follower of Jesus to be born again is not just some meaningless saying. Uh, we have closed the book on one era, and with the help of the Spirit of God, we now live in another. Uh, that day that we chose, seriously chose, to follow Jesus, the day we repented of our sins and experienced his forgiveness, like Barclay says, in that moment, our lives were cut in two, and a brand new start opened up for us. So Christians are for that sort of new beginning, for everyone. It's possible for everyone, and followers of Christ stand for that kind of new beginning. Today, followers of Jesus are for valuing the past. Valuing the past. I don't have to tell you that we live in an age of disposable everything. Everything. We live in an age um, that calls anything made more than a few years ago passe and inferior, including people. <laughs> uh, Christians in that age, Christians take a different route. Followers of Jesus remember and value what has passed. Now, what's that mean? Let me say what it doesn't mean. Okay, It doesn't mean that we live there in the past. Some people try to do that, but Christians do not. We do not live in the past. This is not horse and buggy Christianity, okay? Valuing the past doesn't mean you have to love antiques. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're bound to keep using your iPhone 6. It doesn't mean that you believe the world is flat, okay? That's not what valuing the past means. Valuing the past does mean, though, 
that we don't just automatically discard or dismiss that which is old merely because it's old. In this age that not only easily embraces, but in fact nearly worships the new just because it's new. In an age like that, Christ followers are called to a different standard of valuation. We assign value not according to age, but according to truth. We assign value to what is good. We assign value to what is right. We assign value to what is proven to actually work, whether it's old or new. You see how this all kind of comes back to truth, (laughs) Uh, to God's word and to God's revelation. That's why anything anybody says Christians are for, it has to start with truth. It has to start with truth. Christ followers don't toss the past simply because it's past. On the contrary, we value the past because it's the past that shows us the way to a workable future. And that is exactly what Isaiah is calling the Hebrews to do here in this chapter, chapter 46. Uh, Isaiah is writing here of things to come that he can see with his spirit inspired eyes. And he's writing about something in particular. He's writing of the impending destruction of Babylon. And he's revealing the lesson that Israel, who is now exiled, he's revealing the lesson that Israel is to take from that event that is to come. Now, if you're you're in the Bible there, and if you go back to the first verses of chapter 46, you can see Isaiah is, is talking about a couple Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. Bel is the chief, uh, another word for, for Marduk, uh, is the chief of the Babylonian gods. And Nebo, Bel's son, was considered to be the god of learning and writing. So these were the greatest of the Babylonian deities, okay? That's who Isaiah is talking about here. Sarcastically, though, Isaiah then describes them there in verse 1 as having to be carried around even hauled around on ox carts when they have to go from place to place. You see, these so-called gods, Isaiah is, is pointing out, they're actually a burden to their people. So, how are gods like that, how are gods who are dependent on their people worth anything to their people? How can those gods, Bel and Nebo and those like them, how can those gods ever actually help their people? That's what Isaiah is asking. And he answers his own question there in the first part of this chapter. He says they can't. They can't and they won't. They never will. Verse 2 there, the gods cannot protect the people and the people cannot protect the gods. And they go off into captivity together. The image of Babylon being destroyed, you see, and what their gods can or can't do about it. Then he goes on down in verse 6. Isaiah makes fun of the whole idle process. You who like sarcasm, this is for you. Look at what he says. They pour out their silver and gold and hire someone to make a god for it. Then they bow down and worship it. They carry it on their shoulders. And when they set it down, it stays there. It can't even move. And when someone prays to it, there's no answer. How can it rescue anyone from trouble? What's Isaiah's argument? 
He's saying it's crazy to expect help from something you have to create and then carry around. That's his argument against idolatry. Against so much of all the deities that were going on within the Babylonian culture. So, so much for them. That's what Isaiah is saying. But the God of Israel is different, Isaiah says. That's the case he begins making in verse 8. He tells the Hebrews, remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart. You rebels, you who are so easily swayed by your culture, by other gods, by other nations around you. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You see, in contrast to these dead, helpless deities of Babylon, the Lord, the God of Israel, verses 3 and 4 say, created his people and has, has cared for them since their birth. That's the difference between the gods whose people have to carry them and the God who carries his people. Verse 10 there, the God of Israel says, remember, I make known the end from the beginning From ancient times, what is still to come, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. And what I have planned, that I will do. Isaiah is calling the people. God is calling the people. Remember all that I've already done. Look back to your history. Remember how I've worked and loved and protected and saved you. Remember what's past so that you aren't carried away by the moment, by the allure of the new, or by the crazy notions of a people who worship gods that are no gods at all. There is utterly no comparison between the gods of Babylon and the God of Israel. That's Isaiah's message to his nation suffering exile. History proves it. The past is what gives witness to it. That's why Isaiah says to a people suffering, to a people in trouble, what you must do is remember. You must remember. We realize what's real through remembering what has passed. Three times here alone, Isaiah says it. Remember, remember, remember. Depending on the translation, if you count the different ways to say it, all, and there's a lot of different ways, not just the one word, but there's different ways to say remember or call to mind or whatever. If you count all of those up, the Bible calls us to remember a little over 550 different times. Remember, remember. Why? Because it's in the rehearsing of the past. It's remembering what God has already done and, and also what other so-called gods simply cannot do. It's remembering that that builds our faith to trust him into the future. That's really what walking by faith and not by sight means. You know, we just talked about this. We back our way into a future that we cannot see while keeping our eyes fixed on what we can see. And what is it we can see? We can see what's past. We can see what's past. That's all we know for sure. What has passed. That's why we don't just toss out the past. That's why we don't dismiss something or someone just because they're old. That's why we don't automatically assume that progress means better. 
We count on the past to give us perspective and faith for tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I've said this before. I, we'd be so much further ahead as a people, uh, as, a, as a nation, and certainly as the church of Jesus Christ. We would be so much further ahead if more people took the time to learn history. Bernie Reynolds loves it when I talk about this because he's, he's a history professor. Our culture, the culture in which we live, believes that history is useless and dead and not worth our time. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody learns what works from studying the present or from trying to predict the future. But that's where we spend most of our time. Humanity does this all the time in all different disciplines, in economics, in politics, philosophies, family dynamics, marriages, parenting, leadership, you name it, a hundred other ways. We take the latest thing, we take the newest thought, the most modern as the best. And we put all the rest out to pasture. And then when it fails, we wonder why. When will we learn? When will we learn? Nobody learns what works from studying the present. Nobody learns what works from trying to predict the future. We learn what works from studying the past. Knowing what's already been tried and what's already failed. Like the gods of Babylon, for example. That's why Isaiah addresses the Jews here as rebels. Your translation may say something. Rebels, sinners, transgressors, stubborn-hearted <laughs> God called them all that, those things, at one time or another. He can't understand why any thinking person would dismiss that which has proven to work and want to embrace that which has proven totally ineffective. Why would any thinking person do that? We, we see it around us all the time. Why does any thinking person do that? Here's why. I'll tell you why. Because unredeemed people have self-focused hearts and want their way above all else. It's the problem of Eden. It's what happened to us in the garden. Unredeemed people want their way, period. And they will go to any length, no matter how senseless, to get it. And you see, the only way to get our way, the only way a thinking, sensible, otherwise person can get their way is to either ignore or deny or dismiss the God who made us. The God of history. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has proven himself throughout history over and over and over again. You see, you have to push him out of the equation. You have to push him out of history if you insist upon getting your way because you can't work with him because he won't work with you. If you want your way, he's too big and he's too powerful and he's too prevalent and he is too proven. You can't work with God and insist upon getting your way. You've got to get rid of him somehow. And the most convenient way is to simply forget what's past. Forget who he is. Forget what he's done. That is, friends, the way of the world. But that is not the way of those who follow Jesus. That is not the way of those who follow Jesus. Christ followers value the past 
for what it teaches us specifically about God, about ourselves, and about the future to come. So just as Isaiah urged Israel back in these days that were difficult for them, just as Isaiah urged Israel in those difficult days, so does God's Spirit urge us today as we face challenges, as we face temptations, as more and more people around us think we are strange or misguided or old-fashioned or unsophisticated for following Jesus, for reading this book, for looking at history, for standing for truth, for believing in new beginnings. As Isaiah said to Israel, so does God say again to us today, remember. Keep in mind, take to heart, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about, and what I have planned, that I will do. That is our God, the one true God of past, present, and future. And he is with us. So not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of their future, we must remember him, who he is, all he's done. We must remember, and then we must tell them so they might have hope for tomorrow. We actually do all of this every time we come around this table, you see. Uh, Just as God the Father told Israel, so Jesus told those there in the upper room. He said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Words of Christ. And so we do that together today.